um, want to remind us, uh, as we're in the book of Esther, you know, there is a couple of movies out on the book of Esther. I'll put, uh, you know, one's just called Esther, and that's an older one from the late 90s. And, uh, you know, it's got some famous actors and actresses in there. And uh, also there's another one, uh, One Night with the King. I think that came out a little bit later. But, you know, just um, while we're going through the book of Esther, there's not a whole lot of movies that um, I would, you know, I know each one of these movies obviously has got their issues and they take liberty on certain things, but you know, it maybe gives you an idea of scene and setting of it. And um, I think they're old enough, they should be readily available almost anywhere um, to watch or to stream or something. So, anyway, you know, maybe just the setting and the stage gives you some sense of, you know, the period of time we're in and, and maybe some of the characters. And it just maybe draws it a little bit easier for you to relate to or see or, you know, I think those things are, are helpful. And again, we don't see much of it. Uh, you know, a lot of stuff they did on Jesus is always <laughs> questionable at best. So there's a couple of them that actually are, are pretty good, but, um, you know, we don't have a whole lot. And so those are a couple of things I'll just put out your way and that you can look up on your own time and everything. So... But we left off last time with Esther becoming queen, um, again, of the Persian Empire. Remember, this is in between Ezra and uh, chapter 6 and 7. So that's when the whole book of Esther takes place. It's just right in between there. So um, you kind of get a little sense. It's years before um, Nehemiah came back to the land and years after Zerubbabel and Joshua, when they got the, the go-ahead from uh, the Persian king Darius, um, who is Xerxes' father, whose period of time we're in here in the book of Esther, said that they can go back and rebuild the temple. And so, you know, we're in that period of history here. And remember, as we have said a, a number of times, you know, there's a lot of things missing out of this book that you don't find that's not, that's not missing from other books of the Bible particularly and mainly the name of God or, the, you know, Lord or anything like that, Yehovah or, or any that's not mentioned at all in there. And, uh, you know, the laws not mentioned, any of the sacrifices aren't mentioned, the temples not mentioned, you know, none of that is really mentioned. And, you know, uh, again, but I think it's there on purpose, at least I believe that the Lord is, is uh, again, illustrating another uh thing to, for us to learn through this story is that he's always working even when you know people don't notice and people don't see and people don't understand and um, he is working and he's always working he's always working for the good of his people certainly and he's working everything into conformance with his plan and his will whether people want to acknowledge that or not and we talked about her becoming queen uh, she was raised by her cousin Mordecai who really raised her as his daughters. Obviously, he was probably quite a bit older than she was. We know he deeply loved her, you know, when she was taken into the king's uh, list of ladies to possibly potentially be uh, married to, uh, certainly would go into their harem, and that would be it. You know, he would be pacing up and down for that whole year every day, uh, trying to hear any news on her at all. So we know that he loved her and, you know, uh, raised her like his own daughter, and she had that love for him as well. 
Um, and so when she was made queen, we know that Mordecai was kind of promoted. Um, he was recognized and given some, uh, we know he was a scribe. He was able to read and write, which was unusual at those times. And he uh, would, would do that for the king and probably, you know, had a role of doing that writing maybe in, in Hebrew because he knew Hebrew and maybe some other languages. It doesn't tell us, but we know he was a pretty smart guy and he could read and write. Um, so we see him at the end of chapter 2 in the king's gate. And that's where all the leaders met. Um, you know, it was a place of where the leaders for the country, uh, you know, or the, I'm sorry, the, the um, um, not the country, the uh empire would would meet so the who's who would meet there now the king would have his own throne room and certainly have people around there but this was the the next spot if you would and he was uh there and he was allowed to be there and he overheard remember last time an assassination plot uh, by a couple of the king's guards and uh, he revealed it to esther who told the king and these guys were investigated and certainly they were trying to do that and they were you know uh, put to death but nothing happened. You know, Mordecai wasn't recognized for this. He wasn't given a pat on the back. Hey, good job, man. You saved my life. Typically, the king would, would be very generous and uh, obviously so for somebody that would save his life and, and uh, put out the plot, you know, put the, move the plot out. Because, you know, Mordecai could have the attitude of who cares, a Persian king, he's this, that, whatever, you know, one comes, one goes. But he didn't, and uh, but this is all part of God's plan. I can imagine Mordecai, as we talked about last time, feeling kind of like, man, I did this, I did that. I risked probably something. If these guys found out before it got word to the king, I could have been you know, on the list of being you know, put to death by these two guys. And um, you know, nothing seemed to happen here, and, but yet we know the Lord was working through all this, and all this is going to come out at the right time. And so again, as we go through this, I just want to emphasize that important lesson that, you know, God um, is interested and working hard. And a lot of times when, you know, we feel or we, you know, seeing people when it looks like God's not interested or he's not answering or he's not involved or he thinks this is not important and, you know, and particularly when things aren't going well and they're going bad and we have questions as Lord, where are you? What are you doing? How come you're not answering? How come you're not changing? How come you're not doing this? Um, and, and, you know, when we could tend to think, uh, and, and certainly people that don't know the Lord do that all the time, but even us, you know, believers and Christians that, you know, we could think, well, Lord, why aren't you doing something? How come you're not stepping in here? How come you're not acting? Um, and you can think is, you know, what's going on? Why aren't you involved in this the way I thought you should be involved in or where I, I hope you would be involved in? But we have to remember that he is working, and that's the big overall arching principle of the book of Esther. And really, literally, in one minute, everything is going to change. Everything is going to work out. Everything is going to take place as God put every, all the pieces together and you know one minute it's it's going to be death and the next minute it's going to be life literally it just you know changes and uh, uh, in an instant and then when we see that and, and we know that because this has probably happened many times in our lives you, you know all of a sudden then we see things change and him work and how things worked out and what happened and then you know we start looking back 
and we start seeing his fingerprints on this and working through that and moving this into place, you know, as we look back and seeing, we can see how he, you know, worked and what he did and all the things that he did the whole time that he really was involved. But typically, you know, a lot of times we just don't see it until after the fact. And then we look back at how we, things happened the way things happened and boom, there it is. You know, it, he's, he was working the whole time. And so, you know, that's the overall principle we need to learn here in the, the book of Esther here. But let's, tonight, let's look at uh, verse 1 of Esther chapter 3, and it says this, After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadetha the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. So again, after some period of this you know, assassination plot and all that's going on sometime later, doesn't give us the date, but, um, you know, Xerxes, remember Ahasuerus is is just a title for king like Pharaoh or Caesar. Um, He promoted this man named Haman. Now, it may not seem like much at the time, and maybe you wouldn't even notice, um, but the enemy is certainly at work as well. And one of the things that maybe caught even Mordecai's attention, as we'll see in a little bit, that, that Haman, and he's the son of an Agagite, um, and Agag was the king of the Amalekites. So Haman was an Amalekite, you know, which was Israel's sworn enemy for generations. As a matter of fact, I'll put that verse up here in Exodus chapter 17 that says, Then the Lord said to Moses, write for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua because they had just gone to battle with the Amalekites and and he wants Moses to write it down and share it with Joshua because he's involved in the battling and he was up on the mountain praying, remember raising his hands and Aaron and her were holding up his hands. You might remember that story. And so he wants him to tell it to Joshua and I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called his name, The Lord is my banner. For he said, Because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So we can see that, you know, this was until, uh, you know, the point uh, where the Lord, you know, finally uh, removed that whole line. At this point, there's still an Amalekite there and... One of the you know sworn enemies, obviously, of the Jews. Now, when he comes to power, trouble will follow, for certainly. But you know, and he'll be revealed of his heart and everything. But again, the Lord is in control, and I can't help but think, you know, some of the Jews might have swallowed pretty hard when they when they heard about you know who was coming to power, because you know, literally, he's the second in command. He's the number two man in this whole world literally dominating power the most powerful empire of that time and so he's he's coming in there and raising up and verse 2 tells us and all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman for so the king had commanded concerning him so we read that, you know, he was promoted. He's, you know, second in power. He's the number two man in, in, the, in the empire there. And it seems like the king ordered everyone to pay him respect by bowing to him. 
So, you know, again, the King's Gate was the hoo-hoos of the empire, and they were, you know, people of prominence and notoriety in the, in the, in the, in the government and uh, probably very wealthy and powerful people. So when Haman would go through there, probably on his way into the palace, that everybody was just supposed to show him respect, and they were to, you know, bow to him, which is, you know, talked about a lot throughout Scripture, and we see that. Even in today's society, people do that. Um, and so they, he commands them to bow. But notice the rest of verse 2. It says, But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage or homage. Then the king's servant who were within the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? So again, they know that, you know, that they, they know that they're supposed to bow to him. Haman comes through. And the people in the king's gate notice that Haman or that Mordecai is not bowing when Haman comes in. What we call this today is civil disobedience, right? That's what we call it. It's disobeying the government. And you know, whenever we run across these passages in the scripture, and there's not a whole lot of them, but there is, uh, you know, a, a good number of them, enough to give us a, a very good understanding of what the Lord feels on this. And tells us, uh, and you know, he does tell us pretty clearly there is a time to do this. And the time that we're called to do this is when, you know, we're called whether, you know, to deny our faith. If we're called, if the, you know, the government says, you know, you can't believe that, you can't do that, you, you know, you can't be, a, you know, have that faith in Jesus or the Lord, or you can't obey what the, Lord, what the Word of God says very clearly. You know, we have the Bible, and when they say, uh, you know, you can't do this, and the Bible says this is what we're supposed to do, or vice versa, you know, you're not supposed to do this, and they're saying, no, you need to do this, then that's where we put our foot down and say, no, we're just not going to do it. But it never comes over pride. You know, you hurt my pride, or I don't like what you're doing, and so I'm just going to, you know, not, not do it for whatever reason or whatever crazy reason. You know, even though you feel strongly in this, you know, if it's not clearly in Scripture and you're called to disobey your faith or what the Scripture teaches, then we're supposed to go along with what the government says. And too many people have made a stand on non-biblical issues. Um, you know, it, and that's just never a good place to go. It's just going to get you in trouble, and it's going to malign the name of Christ, I believe. And, it, you know, the, the media likes to, anything they can get on a pastor or a Christian leader or a person that just calls himself a Christian and does something, you know, completely wrong or off the wall or just, you know, they're going to they're gonna put that, you know, front and center of the news. And, you know, so everybody can see that, that obviously Christians could be put down. And we don't want to malign the name of Christ. You know, we, we have clear biblical instruction. We don't disobey unless it, you know, conflicts directly with, with Scripture. So, you know, people think, well, if I just kill an abortion doctor, you know, there won't, he won't be able to perform the abortions that he would. No, 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 right? I mean, no, no, with an exclamation point or two. No, it's completely wrong. And, um, you know, uh, well, what about this or what about this? And, you know, what I always go back into my mind is, look what the first century church or the beginning of the church lived under. I mean, they lived under the Roman Empire. 
and all the the terrible, evil things that came and gone with that government, um, and you know they lived in it, and there was times that they did, you know go against what Rome said, but only when it came down to those important things. And they live with the Roman Empire. And I don't think we're not quite there yet, but we're getting there. And certainly Europe is ahead of us on that and putting down Christians and we'll do that. And, you know, the other thing that kind of bothers me when you hear wars around the world and they say the Christians are fighting the Muslims or the Christians are fighting the, you know, the, you know, in Africa, it's a lot like that. Or even in India, sometimes or in the Middle East, there's a, you know, sometimes you see that in Lebanon and a few places, you know, the Christians are fighting this, mostly in Africa. You know, it, it, that's all about religion. You know, that's their religious. It has, you know, they're not representing Christ in doing that. Uh, and it's sad because it wraps us all up in that wrapper, which is, is not good and not true. And again, if conscience calls us for civil disobedience, I don't think we need to make a huge public issue about it. You know, I don't think we need to raise the flags and raise the banners and, you know, look what I'm doing. Uh, I, you know, I, um, we don't need to make it a public issue. As a matter of fact, we'll see here in a little bit that Haman doesn't even notice what Mordecai is doing or not doing in this case. He has to be told by some of these other people that are hanging around the king's gate that he's not doing it. So obviously Mordecai wasn't just like walking up to Haman, everybody else is bowing, and he's standing there looking him straight in the eye. No, we're not talking about that. He was actually probably pretty private about it and didn't make it a big deal, as we'll see here in a little bit. Now, the next question to ask is, well, why is he doing this? Why is he refusing to bow to Haman? Hard to say because it doesn't really tell us specifically. You know, maybe he thought... Uh, revering him was wrong or the way that the king had them revere him was wrong, maybe because he was an Amalekite uh, and all the evil that they had done to, to his people, to Israel. Um, again, it, it doesn't tell us. But what the Bible does tell us, particularly in this time and before this in the Old Testament, is that there's many cases where somebody in the Bible would bow out of respect. It's just there's many cases of it here to godly and to the ungodly. So it wasn't like there was this precedent in the Old Testament where you're not to bow down to anybody. Now you weren't to bow down and worship, obviously. That's what the Ten Commandments talk about. You know, you should not bow down and worship them. You know, the first commandment, uh, or second commandment, or making idols, however you want to, to look at that. So but we're not, you know, and maybe in some way that's how he applied it. And um, it doesn't really tell us the exact details, but, you know, paying reverence to a leader in that way traditionally is okay. You know, I've been to Japan on, on a number of occasions, and one of the customs that they do is that you bow. And the lower uh, rank you are in society, um, or the more you want to recognize somebody, the lower you bow. You know, if you just do this, you know, you, you think you're kind of on closer to the top. If you, sorry, my back hurts. I can't really, if you go down or even down lower, right? You, you, uh, you know, you can't, uh, you know, you're, you're just paying more respect. And so I, I had no issue of doing any of those things. Like there's no, pro, uh, no, nothing prohibiting that, but 
why he didn't specifically do it, and maybe because the way they wanted him to do it was more like worship, or because he was a Malachite, it doesn't tell us, but you know, he is not going to bow down to it. And they've kind of asking him, What's going on? You know, what's going on? Uh, why do you not do this? Well, the question's not answered here, but we're told in verse 4 now it happened when they spoke to him daily and he would not listen to them, that they told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. Okay, here's where things get a little more interesting. So obviously they're asking him why not, he's not going to do it, and they keep asking him daily, and obviously Haman's probably coming in and out daily, so he's probably in there coming through there a couple of times a day, maybe a little bit more. Or something like that and you know and they keep reminding him hey how come you're not bowing why aren't you bowing you're supposed to be bowing like that and uh, eventually again they told Haman notice that in verse 4 so Haman didn't wasn't even aware of it so he again he wasn't making it a big deal uh, and I think that's the way it should be and certainly there's a good example set there but at some point Mordecai um, told them the reason that he's not doing it is because of his faith, because he was Jewish. So obviously it had something to do scripturally with uh, how that bowing equated somehow going against what scripture said, because he's saying, because I'm a Jew, I can't do that. And that was passed along, obviously, to Haman. And he was told what was going along. And we don't know how long it took for them to, to hear about this, but eventually he does tell them that he's a Jew. And remember, we talked about last time that, you know, Mordecai was very insistent, Esther, don't tell them that you're Jewish. And we don't know why. Maybe they were looked down upon society. Maybe, you know, there was something against the Jews in the Persian kingdom or something like that. But he said to keep it quiet. But eventually it comes out, he, he says something uh, after some period of time, this is why he's not doing it, and he has his reasons, and obviously it's because he's trying to honor the Lord. Now Haman knows. So verse 5 says, When Haman saw Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, um, Haman was filled with wrath, and he, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Azuharius, the people of Mordecai. Now, again, first, I think it's important to note, right, Haman was miserable. When he's told this, then obviously the next time he's walking through there, he's probably asking somebody, where's Haman, where's Haman, where's Haman? The guy says, oh, the guy over there. And again, I picture it in my own mind, you know, this is a pretty crowded, you know, exit and entryway, uh, and a lot of important people are there, and this is the place to be. And so I imagine Mordecai kind of standing off towards the back, and, and you know, everybody's bowing down, and, you know, as he's really paying attention, um, you know, he sees Mordecai not bowing down. But think about this for a second. Haman should have been on top of the world, but he's miserable. I mean, he's the second in command 
to the guy that rules the, the most powerful, arguably, kingdom of the world at that time. He's the second in command. He is, as we'll see, fabulously, fabulously wealthy. So he has power. He has prestige. Everybody honors and bows down to him. And he has wealth. You think that the second richest guy in the world would be happy. He'd be satisfied with all that. You know, people, you know, work and slave their whole lives away to get one of those three things, to get notoriety. And you know, they'll sell their souls to TV and movie producers that say, you know, in this movie, you're going to have to, you know, take your clothes off or you're going to have to use these words or you're going to have to do these things which are morally wrong to begin with but you know to get fame and notoriety and success and money and to have whatever you know they're willing to do that um you know or power you know how many politicians we just had our election in california or our primary i should say yesterday and you know how many people just will do anything and say anything and try to get the vote in to get power or how many people just up over the hill there in silicon valley will work so hard to to get more money and more money and more money you know, people work for one of those things and they think, once I get that, then I'm going to be happy. This, he had three of them and arguably more. He had a big family uh, and, you know, I think 10 sons. And I mean, just he, he, he had what everybody would say would have it all. But he's not happy. He can't enjoy what he has because as a non-believer, there will always be something. It will never be enough. I can't get enough recognition. I can't get enough power. I can't have enough money. I can't have whatever it is. It just never satisfies. And all it does is it breeds anger and bitterness. So importantly, he's not enjoying anything that he has right now at this point. He is not happy at all. And next, you know, we'll see the anger behind this man and the evil that's behind it. Again, bitterness and anger always leads down a very dark road. Um, You know, again, we get these pictures throughout Scripture about, you know, the evil workings behind this. You know, I, I, I can't help but think in Daniel chapter 10, you know, it talks as an angel is, uh, coming to answer uh, Daniel's prayer. Remember the angel said, I was detained for uh, three weeks by the prince of Persia until Michael came and helped me. Uh, you know, I, I was reading through this and talking about the one of the, you know, Persian kings here. It just gives, it cracks open the curtain a little bit behind, you know, what's behind the Persian rule here. Uh, again, Satan was behind that throne there. Uh, you know, he, uh, Haman is certainly not happy and anger and bitterness is coming out. But also, you know, there's this big push behind Haman, as we'll see, because he wasn't happy with just, okay, let's just get rid of Haman. I mean, Mordecai, let's just get rid of Mordecai. You know, he, it says right there in verse 6, he disdained or he didn't want to just get rid of Mordecai. No, no, no. Let's get rid of every person that's a Jew, you know, the people of Mordecai, which are Jewish. I want to kill them all. I'm just not happy killing him. I want to kill them all. And of course, we know where that comes from, right? We know that that's 
that's completely the devil moving in there, just like uh, he did with uh, the Pharaoh in Egypt, right? Wanted to kill all the Jewish baby boys, again, to wipe out you know, the Jewish race as much as he could. You wouldn't have any children in, in future generations if you did that. Uh, here, Haman is now committed to wanting to kill the Jews. Uh, Herod, remember in Jesus' day, in, in the beginning of, uh, of Luke chapter 2, him wanting to, to kill all the, the babies around that area so the Messiah couldn't come in, kill all the baby Jews. And of course, we'll see, you know, um, of course, we all know about Hitler and World War II and some of those other times in between. Uh, in the middle of the tribulation, also we'll see, you know, that the Antichrist wants to destroy God's plan and God's people. And so he's going to rise up against the Jews in the middle of, of the tribulation. So first we see that he's miserable. He should even when he has it all. Next we see, you know, the, the, the resentment and the movement behind that of the enemy to wipe out all the Jews. And finally, just think about this. You know, he, Haman is judging all the Jews by the action of one man, Mordecai. He, he you know, he's, he wants to wipe them all out because of what one guy is doing. This is what it looks like today, right? You, you've been around people that have said, uh, you know, hey, why don't you come to church or why don't you read the Bible or you're sharing, the, you know, the gospel with them. And then they say to you, well, I, I just can't go to church or I can't do any of that stuff. There was a person in my life that really hurt me, my mom, my uncle, my neighbor, whatever, you know, and, and, and you know, they really did me wrong. And so, I, you know, I just don't go to church because they did me wrong. They're doing the same thing as Haman's doing, right? They're throwing out every Christian they're throwing every Christian under the bus because of what one person supposedly did to them that was so bad that they don't want anything to do with, you know, Christianity. And that's exactly what's going on here. And, and it's important when people say that, and we know most of, it's, most of it's an excuse, certainly, but you say you can't judge every Christian by that one person. You can't say every Christian is just like that one person that did you wrong. And, but, but people do that. And I know you've seen that. And I know I've certainly experienced it over the years and that's what he's doing here. And that's what people still do today. So don't think it as being so foreign here, although he's got the power to actually physically do something. Uh, people still assassinate, uh, Christians in our day and age, uh, for the same thing. So he's riled up. He is so mad, he is so bitter, and so verse 7 says, In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, uh, in the twelfth year of King Azaharius, they cast Pur, that is, the lot, before Haman to determine the day and the month until it fell on the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. So he's so bitter and so angry, and he wants to wipe out all the Jews now. And it's rising, it's rising, it's rising. And, uh, you know, he is looking now to the, you know, you know, uh, well, he's just, his bitterness is getting so bad. He's like, okay, let's see when, um, you know, when to do this dastardly deed by wiping them all out. And that's what anger and bitterness does, doesn't it? It just stews and stews and it goes up and it goes up and it goes up. It kind of reminds me of that story of 
most of you are familiar with him, Sigmund Freud. You know, he, he died at 83, and he was very bitter. And, you know, people refer, refer to him all the time, and they hold him up in the highest esteems in, in a lot of circles. Uh, you know, they may not agree with all his findings, but he's still held up in high esteem, you know, Sigmund Freud. But, you know, he was, you know, people say as one of the great thinkers of all time. But he also had very little compassion for, for people. Uh, as a matter of fact, he wrote in 1918, he says this, and I quote, I have found little that is good about human beings on the whole. In my experience, most of them are trash, no matter whether they publicly subscribe to this or that ethical doctrine or none at all. And of course, we know that, you know, he was just bitter and nasty and mean and had anger. And, you know, he disconnected from most of his followers and people that, you know, wanted to hear his teachings and all that. And in the end, he just died very broken and bitter with nobody around. And, uh, you know, real sad story here. And, you know, that's the road that Haman's going down. And that's the road the Lord warns us as believers not to allow the bitterness and not to allow the anger because it stews there and festers. And it might take months. It might take years. But if that thorn is still in there, then, man, it's, it's only a matter of time before you act out or speak out in ways that shouldn't happen because that bitterness, you know, it's just like, you know, if you have a thorn in there and if you just leave it there, a lot of times, you know, the body wants to send all the white blood cells and attack and it starts getting red and it gets really sore and all this stuff. And, you know, if you remove that out, it, you know, it, it, it heals up so much quicker. And the same way, we just need to remove uh, those things and not let them work in because they work out to crazy things that just go way beyond, um, you know, what whoever thought could happen. Now, it, it talks about here that he wants to determine when he's kind of doing that. He's kind of tossing the dice, we'd say today. He's rolling the dice. Um, you remember if you, you know, been through scripture, a lot of times they will draw lots or draw straws, we would say today, and uh, to determine, uh, sometimes uh, they would even do that to determine the Lord's will. He is, what they called it in Persia, was the pur. And the reason it's mentioned here is because when we get to the end of it, they're going to celebrate and create a holiday um, called Purim, which is taken from this, the pur, okay? So that when we get to Purim, you know where that word comes from, and we'll talk about when we get there. But, you know, Haman's trying to determine faith by rolling the dice, we'd say, right? When he should work, when this should happen. And we see that the Lord is going to work everything out in his perfect timing. But notice, it's the farthest away that it possibly could be. He's in the first month, and this, you know, the dice rolled and showed, if you would, or the purr came up with, do it in the 12th month. So he's giving the Jews time. Uh, a lot of people look at it as a good thing. They'll say, wow, see, you know, God's working and he gave them the Jews 12 months. You know, he's working quietly behind the scenes, but, you know, his fingerprints are all over it because he's given them 12 months to, uh, you know, to be able to thwart Haman's plan here. I personally look at it the opposite. I look at it as 12 months of worrying and panic. <laughs> I look at it as, man, that was a torturous 12 months. 
you know, I'd, you'd rather have the Lord get through it all, you know, knowing what we know, obviously, in a week or a month at the most. But 12 months of being under the gun and threat of being killed, and not just you, but your wife or your husband and your children and your grandchildren and whatever cousins, aunts, uncles, and all that, they're going to wipe everybody out. But again, the Lord's in control and he's working through all this and he wants to work in the Jews' life as well. And again, we need to know people of this world will do all sorts of things to hurt and trap and trip us up. And we know there's a force behind this, as we said, but we have so much greater protection and love and power in the Lord. It's not even comparable, actually. And they may seem like they're powerful. Haman is the, arguably one of the most powerful people in the world at that time. And he has so much pull, as we'll see here in a minute. And they seem like, man, they could just do one over on us. And I, I look at California state government as that a lot of times. You know, there's just going to be a day where we're going to get some real, I mean, what we have now is horrific but we're going to get somebody that's horrific on steroids that's going to come after us, and it's going to look like, how, how do you fight against the, the California government? Well, we have a God that has no problem with that, right? But even though they have great power, we need to remember the Lord's in control. He's watching, He's protecting, and He's leading. And of course, the verse that we always kind of go back to, hopefully, is Romans 8.28. We know that those things... You know, those who love God, all those things work together for good. And for those that are called according to his purpose, right? All things work together for good. So even though they look like they have the power and, and you might be in a situation where it seems like, man, I just don't have any, you know, I don't know how I'm going to, you know, have anything in this because they have everything. Well, we have our Heavenly Father, which trumps, of course, everything by an inf infinite amount. And we have to remember, even in those 12 months of dark time and these guys, that He's going to work everything out for good. And something we need to remember as well. Okay, so He's got the, he's got the hatred, He's got the bitterness, it's certainly growing. He's got a plan, one to do it. Now all He has to do is execute it. And so verse 8 says, Then Haman said to King Azuharius, there is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all other people's, and they do not keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is, uh, therefore is, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed." And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasuries. Now, when we read this, you just think, how, how evil can you be, right? I mean, the heart of man being so evil, Haman has so much anger and so much bitterness that, you know, he just wants to wipe them out and, you know, says all, all manner of things, obviously, that aren't true and is trying to persuade the king, and he's even willing to fund it. 
I mean, we're talking about millions of dollars. I mean, this was a huge amount of money, more than a, some whole provinces would see, you know, in a lifetime of money, right? We're talking a whole lot. And it just shows you when you read this, and of course, when we read the king's response here in a minute, you can't imagine that, you know, for one guy, Mordecai, not bowing down to him and not showing them respect and allowing that bitterness and that anger and that hatred to seethe and rage. And then, of course, Satan stoking the fire and pushing and all this kind of stuff. But we can just see the evil heart of man. I just want us to remember that. And here's Genesis, uh, you know, 6, 5 talks about the heart of man. For the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the, of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. And of course, that was right before the flood in Genesis chapter 6. But we can show not too many generations from Adam and Eve that this was a summary of what people were like. And you say, well, that was then back then. You know, the only reason we haven't been wiped out by a flood again is because, let's face it, God said he wasn't going to do that again. That was a one-time deal. But are we any better than they were back then? I think not. As a matter of fact, I think we're just as bad, if not worse. But notice God's assessment of our hearts. And then, of course, in Jeremiah uh, 17, 9, it says, The human heart is most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? And again, we, we can talk about and see examples throughout Scripture about the heart of man and how evil it is. And what I emphasize this and spend some time on this is because you know as well as I do that most people think today that they have a good heart, right? Oh, they have a good heart. I have a good heart. Of course, I have a good heart. In the end, yeah, I might do this or I might not do this or this is going on. Or, but, you know, I have a good heart or they have a good heart or they're a good person in the end, right? And um, the, the, the reality of it is Scripture is pretty clear that that is completely false, that our inclination, not that there's not times we don't do good things or are nice or show love, that certainly happens. But the wickedness of our hearts can lead to all sorts of places, and it's there innately in every one of us uh, since Adam and Eve. And again, you know, we can see people that have throughout time have wanted to wipe out particular groups, small and large groups of people, countries of people, areas of people, all sorts of stuff like that, because the human heart is evil. Now, back to our story here. If you were King Xerxes or Ajaharius, what would you say? Haman, your second in command, the guy you rely on to do so much of it probably, he comes to you and says he wants to wipe out a whole race of people because, well, they, they are different than us and they don't really want to keep your laws, and, uh, you know, uh, they're just not good people, right? And, you know, let's wipe them out. For what? Obviously not very much, right? Well, if you were king, what would you say? But 
After knowing what we know about the human heart, I guess it doesn't shock us. And let's read it. Verse 10. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadetha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money and the people are given to you to do with them as seems good to you. Then the king's scribes who were on... uh, who were called on the 13th day of the first month, and a decree was written according to all that Haman commanded, to the king's satraps, to the governors who were uh, over each province, to the officials of all people, to every province according to its script. And that means, you know, he wrote letters to every leader in their language, and it was all translated into every language, into every leader or governor, anybody in charge of any particular area territory and to every people in their language so it was posted around now in every town um, everybody could see it Um, so it was also given to them and it posted around there everywhere in the name of king azuharius it was written and sealed with the king's signet ring that's why he took it off this is official document here from the king Verse 13, and the letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews. And notice this, both young and old, little children and women, in one day on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions. Talk about the evil and wickedness of the heart. The king just seems to go along. He hears this and he just, okay, here's the ring. Go ahead and do what you want to do. The people are yours. Do it right, whatever you want. Don't worry about the money. Got this covered. I mean, he just seems to go along with this horrific plan without any reason or any justification or anything. You know, it's just, it's just amazing to me. It just shows, you know, how hate can be so contagious and the bitterness of the soul can be so horrific. I, you know, I, he, he is, has so much hate and anger and bitterness towards the Jews. He's just, just pouring out his pores, literally, and the king recognized this. And I don't know what his process was, but we know the evilness of men's heart and it's borne out true here. That man, if this is so bad and he hates them so bad, and there's, you know, there must be a good reason, so let's get rid of them all. And again, it just, it, you know, when we have hatred and bitterness, it's contagious in a bad way. And it's just horrific. And again, it takes us to place and causes us to do action and think about people that are just, we should never go. But it's in all of us, innately, remember that. Not something you can escape. We're all subject to this, but it's something we need to submit to the Lord and the Holy Spirit when He brings this up. When this happens to me, and I'm bitter or angry, you know, I always go to Luke chapter 6, you know, towards the end of the the chapter there, and when Jesus is talking about it, I have to go through and 
and reread showing mercy and you know haven't we been showing mercy and you know the story of the the man that was forgiven by uh, much by the king and he goes I can't pay the debt or oh, lock him up put him in the jail you know you're going to go to debtor's prison lock up the whole family do it all no 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 please king don't please have mercy on me and the king is okay I'll have mercy on you know what just forget the whole thing even though it was a huge amount of money just forget it okay go on your way and then he leaves right and Jesus tells a story he meets some guy that owes him 10 bucks and he's beating him up, and he's calling the guys to arrest him, you know, and then the king calls him, hey, I gave you, you know, 10 years of salary, I forgave you, and this guy owes you 10 bucks, and and you're going to hold him to it? Look how much mercy you've been shown, and you're not showing it? And of course, Jesus says the king had him locked up until he was, everything was paid. So important things that we learn there. And again, I, I, let's look at verse 8 again, because I think it really describes us in another application here, the church today. And there's a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the providence of your kingdom. With Their laws are different from all other peoples, and they do not keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. Just, just think about that for a second. <laughs> Couldn't that be said of us today? Don't people say that of believers today? You know, that they're scattered throughout the world. They're not like other people. They march to a different drum. You know, our hearts and our minds and our lives are not from, and not all about the here and the now. We're, we're, we're thinking about heaven and eternity. And, uh, you know, once again, the rules of this world will say that. And they'll accuse us of this, that we're not fit to remain here. So again, history is going to repeat itself in some point, in some way. And of course, in some areas of this world today, it certainly is already going on and really has been going on. I guess it never really has stopped. But for us, you know, one day they're going to say that same thing. You know, if you're an underliner, you can underline verse that part of verse 8 and you could write, will happen again or whatever, however you like to do stuff like that. But Again, Haman is willing to give millions and pay for the executions, and he spurs it on. Uh, and again, it just describes the evilness of the human heart. He says, whoever you kill, you can keep what's theirs. So let's say we're a Jewish family at that time, and you know the Smiths live uh, in their house, and, uh, you know, we're known as Jews in the kingdom of Persia at that time. So, you know, you're told that if you kill them, whatever's left, uh, whatever they have, it's yours. So what are the neighbors going to think uh, that live around me, live around us? Man, I could have a car or I can have, you know, I could live in their place. I could have this. I could have that. I can have whatever, right? Do you see how it's, you know, uh, the image of greedy, evil hearts to be spurred on? I mean, Haman's taking it to the top, just peeling to the, the basis and evilness of people's hearts that, listen, I'm going to spur you on, not only just put them to death, but you can keep everything. And of course, you know how many people would probably jump at that, just as they probably would today, sadly. Well, let's finish verse 14. And a copy of the, the document was 
to be issued as law in every province, being published for all people that they should be ready for that day. Then the couriers, the couriers went out, hastened by the king's command, and the decree was proclaimed in Shushan, the citadel. That's where Haman and Mordecai and Esther and the king were. So the king, and notice this, the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Shushan was perplexed. Doesn't that blow you away? They just came up with this. They had it all done. Annihilate these people, and whoever does, you can keep all their stuff. Let's get rid of them all on the hearsay of one man, Haman. And as soon as that's all done, and you know, millions of people, I don't know, I heard a number of some 15 million Jews were around then. I, I don't know if that's accurate or not. I kind of think it's kind of high, but you pick a number somewhere of what it might have been. And, you know, he just sentenced, let's say it's a, it's a right number. He just sentenced 15 million people to death from little babies that are two months old to the oldest person of 95 or whatever, all to be killed. You know, and they're sitting down drinking and celebrating. But there are people that are obviously <laughs> the Jews are blown away. You know, and the, the, the worst part is Haman and the kings as well, but certainly Haman thinks that their bitterness and hatred will be resolved once this happens. Of course, you and I know the reality of it. They'll never be satisfied. They won't be satisfied. That can't satisfy them. But, you know, it was spurred on by other acts of hatred and bitterness and greed. And again, all of which can come so easy to the person who doesn't know the Lord and who looks at Jews in that day or Christians or believers in our day as something to be dealt with and to be put away. And uh, you know why that happens? They can celebrate and ease and drink and eat and think everything is great. And of course, we know the book of Revelation talks a lot about that. Certainly one day that's going to happen. Well, let's leave it here at the uh, today and p pick it up next time in chapter 4 where we talk about Esther and what they're going to do and Mordecai. So let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this time, Lord, and for all that you continue to do, Lord. And again, we do uh, are, are reminded that you are at work and you are working. And though everybody is, the Jews, I imagine, particularly, or those that are closely related to them are just they're beyond shock, you know, uh, that their lives could end, their, their wives, their husbands, their children, their grandchildren, their families, aunts and uncles and cousins and all that could just be wiped out uh, in 12 months, no more, and uh, spurred on by all sorts of things. And I can imagine, you know, the questions and the prayers rising up, you know, why or why are you allowing this to happen or why is this going on? Even, even in Jerusalem with uh, Joshua and Zerubbabel, who are you know, godly people, and all those that went back to the land hearing this and seeing this and knowing uh, what the pr proclamation is. And uh, Lord, uh, wondering what is going on and where are you? But again, as we know that you're there and that you're working and that you're working all things out together for good. And so help us to 
Remember that as well, Lord, as these trials and difficulties uh, we might be in the midst of or are coming our way, Lord, that your promises will stand and they'll never fail. And we thank you for that. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, do we do okay?